So if you were to take a, a seminary class on preaching, and I was praying for seminaries a few minutes ago, or take preaching classes like Jonathan is, uh, sometimes you'll hear them, them talk about three steps of preaching. That, that You'll often hear this, and if you start to pay attention to preaching, often you'll hear explanation, illustration, application. So an idea is explained from the text, then an illustration is given, and then that illustration is applied to our daily lives. And, of course, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, he doesn't follow that exact pattern in his teaching always. Sometimes he'll give an illustration, and then he'll explain it and apply it. Or he'll give an application, and then we'll give uh, some kind of illustration and explanation from it. So, again, it's, it's not always as neat as a preaching class in seminary. But it's interesting that if you look at the, the order of this passage before us, that Luke is really following pretty neatly this explanation, illustration, application pattern. And, and that's really what we're going to follow today, and that's our outline. That first we'll look at the principle in verse 1, that's explanation. And then second we'll look at the, the parable flowing out of that principle, verse 2 to 5, the illustration. And finally, the promise in verse 6 to 7, and that's the application. And so let's start first then with the, the principle in verse 1, the explanation. It says that Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And that's really, again, the explanation of the principle that we ought always to pray and never lose heart. And if you were to read through the New Testament, that general principle is actually repeated many times. Uh, for example, here are some examples from the Apostle Paul. Uh, Romans 12, verse 12, he says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Or Colossians 4, 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he says, pray without ceasing. And it's all a way of saying what we see here. We ought to always pray and not lose heart. And we even see this exact same principle laid out back in Luke chapter 11. And you may remember that when we looked at this passage many months ago, that Jesus told a parable there as well about this person who's laying in bed with, in the middle of the night, uh, his family is asleep, and one of his neighbors just pounds on his door saying, please give me food because I have a friend who's coming to town. I don't have anything to lay before them in a society that values hospitality, so please give me something. And it says that at first the man just stayed in bed, tried to ignore it, hoping he would go away. But then eventually he got up almost in annoyance and gave him something. And listen to what Jesus says about that. He says, I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. And so again, that's this principle we see here in Luke 18, 1. That we ought always to pray and never lose heart. Whenever Jesus gives us a command like this, 
we know that we're tempted to do the opposite. That we're prone to give up on prayer. That we're prone to lose heart over and over again as we go throughout our day and our week and our month. And maybe that's something that you have experienced recently, where you you look at the world and you're really tempted to lose heart. You look at politics, you look at race relations, you look at the pandemic and its effect, the opioid crisis, human trafficking, environmental destruction, abortion, broken foster care system, tension between global superpowers, poverty, homelessness. You go down the list, all the things that we read about in papers and see on the news, and we think, what in the world can we do about all of this in the world? And maybe we try to pray for a while, but then we say, well, what good are my small little prayers in the face of such enormous problems in the world? So we lose heart, and we're tempted to give up on prayer. But of course, the same thing can happen, not just when we're looking at the news and all the things going on in the world around us, but it can also happen when we look in our own lives individually. We see broken relationships, and we wonder, could this relationship ever be healed? We see sickness or cancer or disease in our bodies in different ways. We face depression or mental illness. We see patterns of sin over and over again that we wonder, can these ever be broken? And so we pray about it for a while, and then we say, well, maybe the the problems in my life, not just to mention the world, are are too deep, too profound. It's not even worth praying about them. We lose heart, and we give up on prayer. And again, that's why Jesus, here in our text, says that we should always pray and never lose heart. And J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this passage, says it really well, that prayer is the very life breath of true Christianity. Here it is that religion begins. Here it flourishes. Here it decays. Prayer is one of the first evidences of conversion. Neglect of prayer is a sure road to a fall. And so we need the principle that we ought always to pray and never lose heart. But of course that does raise a question. What does it mean by always? How do we always pray and not lose heart? Well, it doesn't mean that literally at every moment we're on our knees and that we stop caring for our family, stop going to work, that we don't do anything else. But it does mean that prayer is the central overriding habit of our life, that it's what drives everything that we do, that when we wake up in the morning, we pray. When we wake up in the middle of the night, we pray. And we pray when we face hard things and trials. We pray when we face good things, when when life is going well, that prayer constantly flows from our lives. And this is something that we've actually seen recently in our study in the book of Daniel on Wednesday nights, if you've been there. You'll remember how King Darius made this law, this proclamation, that for 30 days no one should pray to anyone except to him, the king. And Daniel refused to obey, and he would go up into the upper chamber of his home three times a day, continue to pray, continue to give thanks, that he didn't lose heart, 
He didn't give up on prayer. Even when he was facing persecution, when he was facing injustice, when he, he was facing so many difficulties in his life. And I think that that's an important example for all of us here today. Uh, it, while I was working on this sermon, I actually have a little thing taped to my computer screen that says, pray first. Uh, and I don't always do it perfectly. Um, and actually, when I was working on this part of the sermon, I sat down and started working on the sermon without praying first. But I actually have that taped to my screen because that, uh, that's what I'm trying to remind myself to do, that when I sit down, I don't just immediately go into productivity mode, but it's, all right, I'm going to pray first. Before I send an email, I'm going to pray first. Before I make an important decision for the church, I'm going to pray first. That's what it is to, to pray always without losing heart. But this is also something that we can bring into our worship service together. Uh, one thing that may be different in a fairly traditional worship service like Hope Church is the number of times that we pray. And I think for some people at first, it might almost seem unnecessary where we pray before the service. If you're a volunteer, we pray during the prelude together to prepare our hearts. We pray after the call to worship. We pray after the confession of sin that we have a pastoral prayer. We pray the Lord's Prayer. I read the passage of Scripture. We pray that we can understand the Word. At the end of the sermon, before the Lord's Supper, we pray. And then hopefully, even when we go home, the prayer is continuing to flow at, into our lives that, Lord, apply all these things. Apply this worship service to my heart. Let it not just be something that I'm, I'm leaving behind in the week, that we pray always and don't lose heart. And of course, that's also something that you can think about in the life of your family. It's fairly common for people to pray before a meal. And sometimes those prayers can be just very brief and we want to eat as soon as we can. But families, especially families with children, it's really important to figure out ways of bringing prayer regularly into the life of your home. To look for the opportunities to, to pray daily with your children, for your children, to pray for their concerns, um, to model prayers of repentance and prayers of thanksgiving, and to have that be something that your children, as they're growing up in your home, are, are seeing and, and witnessing. And also, if you're in a, a marriage, if you're married to somebody who is a believer, it's something to bring into your marriage as well. Uh, this is something, actually, that the pastor who married Grace and me told us. Uh, and we have not always done this perfectly, but he says, never go to bed without praying together first. And when we have really done that, there is something at, that at first is hard where you feel like you're going through just the motions of, okay, well, we're about to go to sleep. Let's pray together. But it is hard to go to bed angry, to hold on to, to bitterness when you're really putting that regular pattern of prayer together, that, that we're to pray always and never lose heart. But of course, this can also be something that you carry into your relationship with non-believers. That, that you can actually go to a non-believer if they're telling you, hey, I'm, I'm facing this in my life. It's, it's really difficult. It's really hard. You can say in the moment, hey, can I actually pray for you right now? And I've found that very seldom do even people who don't believe in Christ, do they get offended or say, no, I, I don't want prayer. That, that often people, even who don't necessarily believe in prayer themselves, are moved when we pray for them. And so again, every aspect of our life 
prayer can be brought into it, it can become the, the driving force for what we do, that we pray always and don't lose heart. And so that's the, the principle here in our text, the, the explanation. But now let's turn to the, the parable, the illustration flowing out of this explanation. So look at verse 2. Jesus says, In a city there was a certain judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And so in this illustration of the principle, uh, Jesus lays out these two characters, and they're on the opposite side of the cultural spectrum. Uh, so that we see this man, and he's a person of power and influence. Uh, he's a man in a predominantly chauvinistic society, and that's an advantage for him. He's also a judge who yields political, legal power over others. Yet sadly, Jesus says that he neither feared God nor respected man. And, and so that's a way of talking about the, the great command, that he didn't love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't love his neighbor as himself. But then the other character in the parable, again, is on the opposite side. She's a woman, not a man. And instead of being a judge who wields legal power over others, she's a woman, but even more, she's a widow. And they were often taken advantage of in society. They were a vulnerable population. And so she apparently had experienced injustice in her life. And that, that's why it says that she would come to this judge and would cry out for justice against her adversaries. It really was systematic injustice in a true sense that she was facing. And at first it says that the, the judge didn't listen. He didn't pay attention. He, he didn't care about giving her justice in her life. But then instead of giving up, it says that she kept coming to him over and over and over again. And so you can almost imagine him, he goes to the market to buy grain. And there she is, comes up and, give me justice against my adversaries. And he tries to ignore her. And then he goes home and she's waiting outside of his home. Give me justice against my adversary. And he tries to get inside as quickly as he can. And then he shows up at work in the morning, and she's the first one waiting for him. Give me justice against my adversaries. And he's just thinking, oh, my word, why is this lady, why, is she, why does she just keep coming over and over again? And, and that's why in, in verse 4, Jesus narrates the inner dialogue. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And so again, she comes to him persistently. She doesn't give up over and over again. And eventually he gives her justice against her adversaries, even as a wicked, evil judge. And so you say, well, what does this teach us about God? Why is Jesus giving this illustration? And it's really what you can call this argument from the, the lesser to the greater. That what he's saying is that if this unrighteous judge will give justice to a woman who continues to cry out over and over again and never gives up, never loses heart, 
How much more will the loving creator God of the universe hear us when we pray to him? So again, that's the parable, the illustration. But now third and, and finally, let's move from the illustration to the promise, the application in verse 7. Jesus says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And that's the promise right there. I tell you, God will give justice to them speedily. Or as another translation says, he will grant justice to them quickly. And this speedy, quick justice, if you look at the context before and after, is really pointing us to the second coming of our Lord Jesus when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And last week we talked about living in this tension between the the already and the not yet, that Christ has already defeated sin, death, and the devil through his sacrifice on the cross. But yet here now we still see the effects and the the, the power of sin, death, and the devil in the world around us. And so we, we long for justice in a, in a world that yet has not been made fully right. And it's in this tension where we start to say, well, how do we not lose heart? How do we continue to pray over and over again? And we're brought back over and over again to the character and the nature of God. That we're not suffering ultimately because he doesn't care. We're not suffering because he's not powerful enough to fix it. But we're suffering actually according to his sovereign plan. And that in his reckoning of time, as one outside of time, that he is coming quickly to give justice to his people. And so then our call, the application for all of us is to keep praying, to never give up on prayer, to never lose heart, no matter what we're facing, but to come to God over and over again saying, give me justice against my adversaries. But look again at verse 7 in your Bible. Jesus says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Now, if, if you've been around church theological cir- circles much, you may know of the, the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. And sometimes people will think that talking about God's elect is just something that Calvinists talk about, who believe that God chooses us before we choose him, and we choose him ultimately because he chose us first. But we actually see this word elect many times in the New Testament, over 15 times. And listen to how the Apostle Paul describes God's election. This is Ephesians 1, beginning of verse 3, if you want to turn there in your Bible. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his 
will. And so for, for Paul, when he's talking about God's election of his people, this sovereign choice, he says, before the foundation of the world, it's not something that, that he thinks leads to pride or arrogance for people to boast in themselves. But for him, it, it actually leads to humility and to, to worship. And even more, it leads to this great sense of confidence and trust in God. And it's really what Jesus says in John 10. He says that, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And then jumping down to verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And that's the great hope and the promise of God's sovereign choice, that, that no one can pluck us out of his hands, that there's this great assurance that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ, because he's the one who ultimately began the work, which is also why Paul says that he's sure that the God who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean, though, that we can just say, well, I'm part of God's elect, and so I'll just go on living however I want to. Because listen to what J.C. Ryle, and I quoted him earlier, but it's, it's very strong what he says here, uh, working from our text in Luke. He says, What are the marks of election? By what token shall a man know whether he is one of God's elect? These marks are clearly laid down in Scripture. Election is inseparably connected with faith in Christ and conformity to his image. Above all, we have a plain mark described by our Lord in the passage before us. God's elect are a people who cry unto him day and night. They are essentially a praying people. And a prayerless man must never be called one of God's elect. And so that is then our call, is to be a, a praying people. That, that yes, we have confidence that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. We have confidence that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. But, but that doesn't lead to a confidence in ourselves or a boasting in our own ability. But instead, we actually look at the warning in the final verse of our text, in verse 8. Look there in your Bible, verse 8 in Luke 18. Jesus says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And that's such a sobering question. That when, when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, will he actually find anyone trusting in him for salvation? What is going to be the state of the faith of humanity when he comes again? And according to the Bible, apart from the grace of God, faith is actually impossible in ourselves. That we're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, that left to our own devices we would never believe because dead people can't choose things. But that's why in Ephesians 2.8, the Apostle Paul says that by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so if Christ finds faith when he returns, it's not going to be because we're so strong or because we have everything together, but actually it says that faith itself is a gift of God's grace. And so the the call then today for all of us is not to worry about whether or not we are part of God's elect, but the call for each and every one of us is to do exactly what it says, to cry out to him day and night, to cry out to him in repentance, acknowledging that we've sinned, that we've fallen short of his glory, that we can't save ourselves, to cry out to him daily saying, Lord Jesus, I need you, I need your work for me on the cross, that that's the only way I'm going to stand before the justice of God on the last day, that I need you, Jesus. And as we we trust in Jesus, we're united to him by faith, that our sin is counted to him, his righteousness is, is counted to us, we're accepted into his family, adopted into the household of God. And it's from that position, knowing who we are in Christ, that we can really truly begin to pray. And, and pray without ceasing, to pray always, to never lose heart, because we know that we belong to a Savior who loves us and who gave himself for us. And as we turn to this meal today, we remember that our faith can be strong sometimes, it can be weak, but thankfully our salvation doesn't depend on the strength of our faith, but on the strength of our Savior. And that God has given us means, actually, as believers, to strengthen our faith daily in him as we trust in Christ. And so one means that he gave was prayer. That that as we pray to him, we call out to him, God uses that to strengthen us. Another means that he's given up to strengthen our faith is is the word of God, the the scriptures. And that as as we study it, as we read it, as we hear the word preached, that the spirit works to strengthen our faith. But the Lord has also given us the the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper to strengthen our faith. And, of course, during this pandemic, we have grieved the fact that we have been uh, unable to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And and today we're going to actually be celebrating this meal for the uh, first time since March. Um, And then the plan will be to go to a monthly celebration of the Lord's Supper and eventually move back to, to weekly celebration. And you say, well, how does God strengthen your faith through this meal? Well, part of it is that you're, you're looking back to the work of Jesus on the cross. You're, you're seeing his, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. You're also looking forward to the day when Christ will return, that speedy return to give justice to his people, the marriage supper of the Lamb that we look forward to. But also, he strengthens our faith in the moment through this meal because Christ is spiritually present with us in a unique way as we celebrate this. We don't believe that he is physically, bodily present uh, in the bread and in the the juice, but we believe that he is here through his spirit to to strengthen a people who are so often weak and so often waver in their walk. 